Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. If you haven't hit that subscribe button, make sure you do. Today in the booth, we got returning champ, Mike Ponticelli. In addition, we have a new guest who is anonymous, who, who we refer to hilariously by Q. With 15 days left in the election, we get into the logic of the right and why Q has turned from an Obama voter in 08 to a Trump voter today. So listen up. days out are we from the election right now are we at 18 yeah what is it's like two uh two more weeks until the election week right is that what it is yeah well we're 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 in the countdown a few days ago we did a recording with a friend of ours who might be voting third party and we're just trying to you know circle the wagons here on all the different ways people are looking at this election so we have a returning friend of the pod mike ponticelli who some of you might uh, recall uh, came on in defense of conservatism. And then we have another friend coming on who is an anti-Biden voter, so he will be voting for Trump. We're, we're just going to call him Q for now. Uh, we'll keep him anonymous. We'll see if he wants to join on. But welcome, friends. And yeah, we're here to just kind of, I think what we've been trying to do is understand, just like we did, Ponto, with your episode, just where people stand. You know, what are the points that matter the most to them? And then, of course, you know, Ed and I will, will prod around a little bit uh, from our standpoint. But uh, welcome back. And, and Ponta, maybe we'll start with you. You know, where are you leaning uh, with this election? So, um, so thanks for having me back, guys, and keep up the good work. I, I remain a big fan. Um, you know, where my head is at right now is, uh, is actually me and Q here. Q will be probably the, the pro-Trump voice of this uh, particular session. I am a Republican. I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Republican. I'm not necessarily a pro-Trump. I'm definitely not a pro-Trump guy. I'm not going to defend the Trump uh, stance just as I, in the first podcast, it's not going to be the position I take here. I'm not going to be defending the Trump specifically, but I remain a Republican and I remain uh, in defense of kind of conservative values. And you know what I mean? Like kind of like the big things that I think about right now are, I think that the way that the media, you know, when we write this, like the way that the media has been treating everything, I think is extremely troublesome. And, you know, people talk about like existential threats to democracy Trump himself is like a, you know, John, he's like John Mulaney. He's like a horse loose in a, in a hospital. You have no idea what he's going to do next. But is he the greatest threat to, existential threat to democracy? He's nowhere near the, as a big existential threat to democracy as media censorship and the censorship of the big tech, tech platforms that are media now. So I think a lot about, I think a lot about that. And I also think a lot about just like the demonization of the right and that there's like a, like, just like to boil it down, like you're racist if you vote for Trump or you're racist if you don't agree with Biden or you, you're racist if you don't agree with Black Lives Matter. Like it's actually like that to me, I, I find just so in, insanely like repulsive and toxic. And it's just like, it's just inconsistent with my morals and values. So like, I, I, I think that there's like a, this ambient level, this insane ambient level of toxicity. Trump definitely con contributes to it. He's a rabble rouser uh, and he just, you know, throws kerosene on every plane that he can find, he can find. But the left is not a passive voice that's just with magnanimity and, 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 you know, with maturity, you know, like pushing back against that, like the left, you know, it you know, writ large, you know, through media uh, and through all the different channels that it has, the media is, is doing this, is throwing just as much feces in the monk, in the monkey cage. And that, that, that to me is repugnant and repulsive. 
And just in general, by the way, I'm just like repulsed by like everything that's happening in America right now. None of this stuff is exciting to me. I feel like no one gets out of this alive. That's so Mike, that, right before we get over to Q, I just want to ask the question, which is, you know, we heard a lot from our last guest who was talking about potentially voting third party. She was someone who was going to vote for Bernie. Honestly, some of her values have probably floated more over to the Republican Party, but she doesn't necessarily want to vote for Trump. She's interested in this libertarian vote, which, you know, we were saying we, we didn't necessarily think the math worked, but she, you know, she looks at, I think, a little bit more as like a rebellion vote in the sense that she's just so fed up with a lot of things, including the media. Are, yeah. are you someone who would ever entertain the libertarian party? Is that something that you find actually is pretty close to how you kind of size up oh, yeah. yeah 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 for sure i think a lot of conservatives actually are like kind of very libertarian uh and are very like kind of small government i definitely feel that way but no that's that's a cop-out in the presidential election like governor larry hogan of maryland said he wrote in ronald reagan dude that's a fucking joke like dude it's a it's a two-party system you're either for or against. that was crazy like, yeah this is just such a silly like you know what i mean like like you miss me with your like you know, I'm going to take the moral high ground and just throw my vote in the trash. You know what I mean, dude? Like, wake, open your eyes, man. That's not what's happening in America right now. You're either for or against this two-party system. Is the two-party system the best system? Absolutely fucking not. And I think that the whole point of this is that the entire system here is just bad. A two-party system, everybody loses. But no, you have two votes. You, have, you, have, you go left, you go right. That's all, that's all you got. All right, well, uh, let's, let's welcome Q into this. And obviously, we're joking a little bit with Q at the Anonymous. But um, where where did you vote in the last election and, and where are you leaning now? So I actually didn't vote in the last election. So much to the chagrin of all your devout MAGA supporters and viewers and listeners, I'm not here to support Donald Trump. The last time I actually voted was in the 08 for Barack Obama when I was living in San Francisco. So this is going to be the yeah, first time I'm back. going to vote since 2008. And I consider my vote for Trump not a vote for Trump, but more of a vote against what I've seen from the left. I mean, Ponto hit on a lot of those same reasons that I think many middle of the road people that are, that are leaning more right are, are taking, which is this anti-Trump, which is being filtered through lies and distortion. And the media keeps repeating them, these lies over and over again, which has led to these availability cascades, which are just repulsive and really upsetting to me and a lot of people that aren't racist, but are being peg racist, right? So that's kind of where I'm sitting today. Q and, and Ponto, I know, uh, well, Ponto, I know that you longtime Republican affiliation, so have been in the party for a long time and can kind of see the trajectory that's taken. And Q, it sounds like you haven't necessarily been part, affiliated with the Republican party for a long time. But, but my question for the two of you is, have you seen, like, I want to, you're right in that, Republican Party has been completely flattened in terms of what people understand their interests are um, and that just they're all racist, which I don't agree with. And, and neither does far. I mean, we talked about this during the last pod, that there's a lot more going on there as there is on on the in the Democratic Party as well. But can you talk a bit from what you've seen in the Republican side in terms of defections like, you know, some people are registered independents, but then they vote Republican. So they're not, you know, outright affiliated with the Republican Party. There's like a libertarian faction within the Republican Party that is more, you know, progressive in some ways than kind of the lower South, you know, old Confederacy part of the Republican Party. Can you talk a bit about like the factionalism that exists there and why people are have been disaffecting more recently than um, before? Well, I'll jump in first, um, <clears throat> you know. 
a lot of people go right of center because they want smaller government. They want to pay less taxes. They feel that, that, if, that if there's a problem in society, the problem is fixed by the markets. It's not fixed by government intervention. intervention. And that, that is like a central like bedrock kind of philosophy of the right. And so when you say like, hey, you know, there's not enough black and indigenous people of color who are represented in, you know, uh, the C-suite or in Hollywood or, you know, I don't know, law, finance, whatever it might be. The, you know, okay, so there's the problem. Okay, so which way do you go? You know, the left will go, oh, well, we need to take a heavy handed intervention. We need to make sure everybody gets quotas. We need to make sure that, you know, there's affirmative action and all the other you know, million kinds of things that are kind of stem from that set of psychologies or philosophies. And then on the right, you just say, you know what, like, listen, if we just, if we just give everybody equal access, it's not going to shake out wherever, you know, there's 21% of every corporate board is going to be, you know, whatever, um, or whatever the statistic might be and whatever the, the minority group might be. But if, if you do, if you have equality of opportunity, uh, and equality of opportunity insured by the markets, not insured by a heavy handed government that ensures that the right number of people cross the finish line, but rather that, you know, just everybody has access to the race, um, that, 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 that over time, it, everybody wins over time, that that is, that is the best way to solve all of societal problems by creating equality of opportunity, not equality of condition. And so that, that central belief that I think deeply resonates with a lot of people, regardless of where they sit on the political spectrum, will draw people to the right. And then I think people, I think people who feel that way, but don't really get in the weeds for like the, the Republicans like foreign policy stuff, or don't, don't really get in the weeds, you know, I mean, with specific kinds of tax or fiscal policy, just take, you know, to take a step back and they're like, you know what, I just, you know, I just don't think government intervention is the right way. I think that, you know, I mean, just if we can just give everybody great access and lower taxes, that resonates with me. I think a lot of people that feel that way say libertarian as a, as a word that is a proxy for those set of philosophies. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to that at all. I mean, I, I don't feel comfortable necessarily speaking on behalf of libertarians and everybody else. So just, I've kind of, oscillate between sides based upon what I'm seeing on from both policies of both parties. Yeah, I think the word I think the word libertarian, I, I think the word libertarian is really, really misused. I think it's kind of a cop out like a little bit. But I, I think if you're saying libertarian, you're kind of like a, a low tax, less government guy and you just or person you end up like kind of floating to the right. So, yeah, the way the, the way I see libertarian, honestly, is it's somehow been carved out of the Republican Party, but it's just a, a faction within the Republican Party, just as much as the progressive Bernie Warren wing is a faction within the Democratic. You, you could say in a way Bernie was, we were talking about this the last episode, was the kind of the biggest third party vote that we've had because, and obviously he lost that <laughs> battle with kind of mainstream moderate Dems. But, yeah, yeah, but, uh, but they're kind of the same, just on different ends. The way yeah, I but, but, but a big difference in Bernie and socialism, by the way, if we, if we make this whole thing a discussion of libertarian, which we can, I think it just kind of missed the more exciting stuff to talk about. But, you know, the difference is like, you know, Bernie and socialism has like a clearly defined set of platforms. They have a clearly defined set of principles and like they actually have candidates. Libertarianism is just like a notion. Hey, there's an occasionally in a libertarian candidate and it's usually some guy from like, you know, Montana or something who runs a lot of triathlons. But like, but like, no, no, like Bernie's socialism, <laughs> Bernie's socialism is a clearly defined political party you know libertarianism is just a set of notions of small government which is why bernie really has been the only like true third party like mainstream candidate probably in recent memory yeah and, and who would have by the way destroyed america <laughs> not, <laughs> not, neither here nor there you probably don't want to talk about that right? yeah we're not we're not gonna go down that rabbit hole but uh so q you you talked about you oscillated back and forth is that just kind of how you grew up was there did you was your family in one direction or the other, or has it always kind of been just, we'll see whatever kind of aligns best? 
Uh, yeah, I think it probably makes sense to, to talk about my background a little bit. Uh, I was born in the South, raised middle class by a single mother who was a high school dropout. And I don't mean to denigrate her all because she's a brilliant woman, did a laudable job raising three kids in their former years by herself when, you know, my father moved across the country. So, um, so yeah, I mean, she, she was, she's a Republican, but we never really talked about politics. It was just kind of do whatever you want to do, be free thinking, be critical thinking, and come to the decision that, that you feel most comfortable about after doing the work. Which state did you, in the South? I grew up in Kentucky. Kentucky? Okay. What do you all think? Here's my, here's my theory, okay? There is a pretty defining social division that has always been there that is as kind of long and foundational and historical to the country. And the party divide has not always aligned with that social division. It only really started aligning on top of that, of, of that social division after the civil rights movement of the 60s. And then it started to sort of shift that way, you know, with, uh, you know, with, with sort of uh, Nixon Southern strategy. And we talk about all those things. But now it's just been laid right on top of that social division. And that division has become more salient than ever and has been the defining feature of what separates the left and the right. Now, that being said, there's all of these other interests that are kind of have, have to align with, with, with that division and maybe, you know, don't want to find themselves on one side of that division versus the other. But it's, it's just like that has just been more of an organizing force in the way that it, it wasn't always um, before the 60s and the 50s. Things were a lot more regional back then. There was, there, there's an argument to be made that the two-party system has always been there, but yet in function, it was more like a four-party system in the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, because politics were not as national as they resulted to be after the 60s, where big government took over to implement the, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, fair housing in 68, um, you know, great society, welfare, like big, big government, and things just started to go sideways afterwards. So I think like that is, is one of the defining divisions that people, people who have been here for a while and sort of generations kind of see that other folks may not necessarily see. You know, what, I mean, what are your guys' thoughts on, 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 on that, if that makes yeah. any sense? I, 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 I'll, I'll bite. Um, so I agree with you. And then I think that coming out of that, you had the incompetent, like that Jimmy Carter basically became the epitome of like the incompetence of large government left, well-intentioned. Uh, uh, big government left because Jimmy Carter is actually a really nice guy. Like I truly believe that man has like America's best interests at heart, and I think everybody actually pretty pretty much agrees with him. But also, there's a, a similar consensus that his that his administration was just just in, rife with ineptitude, and like and like the historical records are basically kind of like unanimous on that. And then and then the answer to that was Reagan, and Reagan was highly efficient, low government, low taxes. You know, it, you know, bring in this, you know, the, the Reagan conservatism. So I, and, and by the way, like, you know, the, the historics of like, you know, how all that happened and there's a bunch of nuance, but like, I, like, I, th I think in general, like, you know, that was the time when it was like, the left was like this big government inefficient, but compassionate set of solutions. And then the Republicans came away, came with like, you know what, small government, low taxes, get the government out of my, ba out, out of my face and, and allow the free markets to intervene. And then boom, we were off to the races. And then, you know, that sets us up to the nineties, which is, 
you know, there, there was, you know, they had the go-go 80s and stuff like that. It's like, you know, the Reagan time was, you know, a prosperous time in America. And so I think that actually to your point that there are four Americas, like it is actually a crazy thing that a Wall Street financial person will be politically aligned with like a rural, like South Dakota, you know, uh, you know, person who's, who's potentially not even educated and is potentially like extremely rural. Like it's wild that those two people are on the same set, that, that those two people are voting for the same person. Like that's a crazy turn of events. Because you would think those people have very little in common, right? Q, what do you what yeah. do you what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I'm not a, a history buff like like Ponticello and you guys are, but I, I guess I could relate it to the day of how just kind of expand on what Ponto said about how a Wall Street guy or or a highly educated person that's in you know a, tire, a higher income bracket will relate to somebody that's in the lowest income bracket in the South, and I think it's something you know Ponticello addressed on on the last podcast that he was on, which is you know, I think it's just a fundamental belief that, you know, America, the universe is neither fair nor equitable. But if you have, you know, the, the fire in your belly uh, and you can bootstrap it yourself, you know, America, you know, there's no limits for you. Um, and I think people resonate with that belief from somebody, I, you know, I, I'm a researcher in the Northeast and I, I will be voting uh, Republican. And I think, you know, when I talk to my mother about it, I think that we both from a social construct of, you know, how do we, we both believe in social good. We both believe that lower income communities and uh, minorities definitely face oppressions and things that we as white people have the privilege of never experiencing. But I think that we share the same belief on how that should be addressed. And I think if, you know, I think we have, you know, my mother and I had big issues with BLM and we're not racist, you know, we believe, you know, as I just caveated, the you know how there's much work that can be done in the police community and the police enforcement community and especially in de-escalation but there's a deeper issue there if you just look at you know fbi and and washington post statistics about cop violence against unarmed black men or hispanics or white people who are armed and then you just break down the math around it of you know unarmed african americans are, are shot at twice the rate as white and, and hispanics are and that's that's a problem but you have to dig a layer deeper and uh, when you dig a layer deeper, it's kind of, it, I'm happy to go into to deeper statistics, but, you know, just, just one statistic that kind of pops out when I look and I ran through the math was as a white man, an unarmed white man, I'm 37 times more likely to be killed by another white man than a cop. And as an unarmed black man, you're 144 times more likely to be killed by another black man than a cop. And as a Hispanic, you're 60 times more likely to be killed. By one of your own than a cop. So what does all that mean? And I think that you know people in the Northeast that vote Republican, people in the South that vote Republican will say there's a deeper issue here with violence within the African American community, and it spills over to how police are enforced, and that needs to be properly addressed. And we rarely hear anything about this. You know, black children are are all of our children, and I think that they need father figures and both parents in homes, and it's a duty as our country to figure out a way to create a safer and better future for them. And the most upsetting statistic I hear about all that is illegitimacy rates, which I think you guys have, have touched upon in your podcast before, which is in African-American community and, and poverty-stricken communities, 67%, which is twice the rate as, as really anybody else. So, and it, it, it's the most important indicator of a child's success. So you know, there needs to be accountability within these communities and, and better parents and better role models. And look, we're spending $5 trillion in COVID relief packages, which are going everywhere, which is you know, I think 1% of that is filled with fraud. But I think, you know, you could find $100 billion somewhere in there for parental education and lower income communities to help, you know, bring the country together and, and kind of rewrite history. 
And that's, I think, where the Wall Street guy and the person in the South really just align on the same views. And where I have to go on this podcast as a pseudonym because I'm afraid if I say something like this under my actual birth name, like I'll be canceled in, on Twitter and Facebook and it'll be the end of me, right? But I think it's, it's critical thinking that rather than just believe these, these lies that are said on TV all the time and just then actually go deeper and have, you know, let's, we both want the same things. We just come to it at, di- at different ways. Yeah. No, those, I think I, I haven't checked the, the, the statistics or the numbers on that, but I mean, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that probably sounds right. The inquiry has to go a bit further. Um, I think after you kind of look at those statistics and you scratch your head and you're trying to understand what's going on there, you know, so I think what could shed some light on that is just how are communities spatially organized? You know what I mean? Is our black communities in parity with with white communities, white suburbs? You know, whether you talk about black communities that are in urban centers in the north or the Midwest and the west, or if they're in sort of more rural communities um, in the old south and kind of what is the difference that creates a more violent environment? You know, it's, it's almost like an ecological argument or, or sort of a, a, when you look at the ecology of one neighborhood over the other, you see some pretty big, bright lines that make black communities different from white communities. You know, everybody hears a buzzwords, redlining, redlining, you know, segregation. But I think it just kind of, people understand it from, from a, from a sur- surface level, but basically what segregation means is that black people, there's, there's poverty, that's one ingredient, and then there's sort of just spatial concentration. Now, when you mix those two things together and you put people in a community, community that are sort of uh, unwilling to, to, to be there, that's what creates segregation versus like Appalachian or, you know, hillbilly elegy or something where there is absolute poverty, for sure, there is. But the difference between that and like, say, Harlem is that people live in fewer square miles. Urban centers became segregated as a part of the New Deal. Um, into the 60s and 70s because of government policy, federal, state, and local policy. Uh, Redlining, putting people in fewer square miles in high-rise public housing or scattered public housing uh, where people live. Not only that, but the people within them sort of excluding them from the job market. So not do you just have like poverty-stricken neighborhoods, but everybody around you is poor. So, I mean, when you talk about other communities or white communities um, where an individual household is poor, oftentimes white neighborhoods, white poor households are better mixed in with a mixed income neighborhoods. So there's a concentration thing that just exacerbates and reinforces this red hot zone of, of, of urban segregation, which leads to more violence. So like ecologically, those environments are more criminogenic. You know what I mean? So there's just there's there's just going to be more crime with joblessness and concentrated poverty. And then you throw illegal guns in the mix, there's gonna be more violent crime. And the only way that you're able to achieve that is through an organized uh, assault of social engineering. So I mean, just to get into like the some some more numbers a little bit, it's the poverty that creates crime. So the only way that you this in this community uh, or this society it's able to is able to happen where a black household uh, that graduated from college has less wealth than a white ha- household where the head dropped out of high school. That does when you first hear that, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It's sort of like, well, more education should um, increase higher incomes and should increase higher wealth, right? But it is only through the sorting of neighborhoods that creates these centers where where black people who even have higher education 
have less wealth than other families in other neighborhoods. I'm getting a little bit rambly, but like, do, you know, do you kind of see like where there's a difference between black communities, which are more violent, you know, QI, you know, I absolutely agree, versus white neighborhoods that are that have more institutional wealth and more neighborhood wealth collectively, and how that um, creates a burden of uh, criminogenic uh, features that, you know, they just produce more violence um, that people have to deal with. You know what I mean? I think the, the question of sort of black on black crime can't be looked at without understanding the way neighborhoods are organized. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And I, I think that that absolutely has is a is a main contributor into the violence in these in these communities. But you also have to look at other ethnicities and races within these communities. So the Hispanic culture is, is on a lower socio-demographic too, but they're more the Hispanics for these crime these crime statistics are are much closer in, in violence and homicide rates to a white community. And if you look at Asian and, and Indian, they're they're you know, they're nowhere even on these crime statistics. So yeah, I, I think there's just a, there's something else that needs to go on there where where yes, there is societal issues that are contributing to these problems, but there's also there's also inner issues that need to be addressed. When I, and I think that really comes down to legitimacy rates and and having good role models and just making sure that everybody has the right path and has an equal path through education. Yeah. Yeah, I would echo that. And I mean, I, I get it like, dude, from the right, man, like the logical conservatives who are like actually reasonable and, you know, informed, like nobody says like, hey, actually your neighborhoods aren't that bad. Like, 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 n like nobody thinks that, you know what I mean? Like, like there's like, like the Republicans I know, I'm generally like, we're, con we're compassionate people. Like, I really care. Like, I, 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 like, I look at these neighbors, I'm like, that's, so I, I grew up in Baltimore City. I'm like, it's so bad. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, a, so we agree that, I mean, like the, the, the situation is bad and we have compassion. It's just like, you know, what's the path forward and you know, yeah. the path forward to, to like the Republican, the right of center thing is family values and focus on the family unit, you know, a, a, which is a, a BLM thing, you know, BLM would say, you know, like, we, you know, it has like these kind of like weird, like alien sounding, you know, solutions for that. And the right is like, dude, you know what? Like, we don't need new solutions here like the the nuclear family unit is like a proven you know path here and by the way you can it doesn't have to be you know two mother father 2.2 children like you know there's other ways of accomplishing that you know what i mean like you can have like you know uncles and stuff like that i mean like but for the most part like it starts in the family it starts with education and then you need to be able to the opportunity to get a job and like you know and then once you have the opportunity to get a job you should have the opportunity to, to climb and like you know we feel that like you know that that those things are in place they're they're out there right now and that if implemented we can, that can help, you know what I mean? Like that, th that, th that throwing, you know, big government spending programs, that throwing entitlement programs and these other things are, like, are just not a, that the, the left, that the left's path for solution is not the best solution. Yeah. But the two parents thing is not, is not the problem. I mean, it's, it's a question of like causation versus correlation, right? So is it the, is it the problem that, you know, these outcomes are, are an outspring of the lack of two parent households? You know what I mean? Two parent house, like that's 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 absolutely true. That that is that is a um, a defining feature of how people live in these these neighborhoods that are more down, uh, downtrodden. That there aren't just sort of two parents there. But is it is the two parent household thing causing mass incarceration? Is it causing more violent crime, or is it reflected with the things that are actually causing those things? You know what I mean? I think that you have to. 
in order to really understand like the string of causality, you have to look at history. And I think like when we talk about we're we're all we're all like talking about two parent households in service of higher incomes, you know, owning a house, better lives, right? Like that, like that's how sort of the, the XYZ of it. But it's in fact like wealth and out in, in, in sort of, of well-being isn't tied to income, it's tied to wealth. And in fact, wealth is a better predictor of income statistically, as like I'm talking about like, you know, mass systemic populations. Wealth is inherently multi-generational. In fact, you know, and then there's a study by this woman, Alexandra Kilowall uh, in Harvard, you know, as part of the stratification economics in that in individuals, the, the, the primary determinant of their wealth status is going to be transfers from past generations. Most people think it's the other way around. Most people think it's you make a high, you get a high level of education, you make a lot of income and you store it away to, to you know, sort of incrementally build wealth that way. But that's not actually how it's happened historically for most groups. So I think it's like, and then, and then if you already have a household with less wealth, I think like the family unit is disrupted in that way. I think the, the, the causality is in fact inverse in the way you all are talking about it. And it, the only way to actually prove that is to talk about how look at past generations that have had the highest level of social mobility and then look at the ingredients about why that was and you got to go to the, the greatest generation for that and that is the generation of the new of the new deal of the gi bill of cheap mortgage credit of levittown all of these things where these boomers come out of that and then the millennials come out of the boomers it starts from past generations and the well-being is put into place before this person goes to college and gets a high income in fact in fact, if you're born in a family with more wealth, then you just have better education. You're better to, you know, you, you have more opportunity to do extracurriculars. Like you, you're, you, you have more resources to focus on academics and go to a better, uh, you know, you have more social connection and social capital to get referred to the internship, to get, you know, to get a, a reference to, you know, sort of the Ivy Leagues. And then you get, you know, into the management consulting or the entrepreneurship and the high income. You know what I mean? So it, it kind of works from that way if you look at the, you know, the history of wealth creation. Yeah, Eddie, I mean, I guess, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, generational passage of wealth, it, it, there's no question that some people participate in the, dis, there's a disproportionate participation in the generational passage of wealth, no question. The right and the conservative place party, party would say, we get it. And no one said it was going to be fair. It's not supposed to be, it's not supposed to be fair who wakes up one day and says, wow, my grandfather just passed me a quarter million dollars. Or, or, or 250 million. It's, it's not, it's not fair. It's just, it, it's, it's just that America has the framework where you can show up without that and still work hard and succeed and achieve. Those are different things. We're talking about different things. I don't want to just side rail the conversation, but the, the conservatives would say, yeah, of course, generational passage of wealth. Absolutely. That's a, that, that's a thing. And it's a thing that, that, that black people disproportionately do not participate in. Um, but what are we going to do about that? We're not going to take all the money from the rich people and give it to the poor people. That's not how America's set up. What we have, there's no, that, that's the cards that were dealt. The only thing we can choose is how we act in the next hour and the next day. And the next hour and the next day is how can we do it to give everyone an equal playing field opportunity to achieve that wealth. There's so much money sloshing around America. You're not going to spread it around evenly. You just you can only give people the opportunity to work hard and earn it for them and earn a slice for themselves. And sometimes it's not even you're not even earning. But immigrants. You know, and other people that have you know, rags of riches, many cases, they're not even working for themselves. They're saying, I'm not even working for me. I don't even want to participate in these fruits. I'm doing it for my children and future generations. And like, it's, it's just like a kind of like a reality of the universe kind of thing. 
I don't want to get us down a rabbit hole because I don't want us to move us forward a little bit, but Q, on a side conversation, you had told me that you would have voted for Beto if Beto had been the candidate. So I'm curious to hear from you where the large differences are between a Beto candidate, candidacy, presidency versus if you know Biden were to win. I think it really comes down to, and this is my, just like, I guess I'm a curmudgeon at the time. I think you can have altruistic values when you go into politics in the beginning, but then the machine just kind of takes over you. And you just change your rhetoric. So, so better goes from, you know, being this middle of the road type of guy to hell yeah, we're going to take your guns. And I'm like, like you're just pandering here. Like if you're pandering here to win votes and you're going to change your tune based upon whatever metrics you think that are going to improve your probability of winning, you've kind of sold your soul. Oh, oh. Did I, oh, did I did I screw that up? Were you a Beto guy or were you a Mayor Pika? I mean, it was Mayor. I Pika, was I was actually. a Mayor Pika. I I gave Beto the credit of the doubt, but uh, or the benefit of the doubt. But then he kind of changed his tune and became this unfortunate thing yeah, yeah so so yeah what what, what was sorry um, so yeah what would be the difference on, on May, our boy mayo versus, versus well mayo Biden? had pretty sensible policies right for the most part there was no i don't think mayo was a huge proponent of the green new deal and massive taxation on everybody i think he ended up taking wall street money which is why he got canceled by twitter and then it, it, everything just kind of snowballed right where it turned into yeah trump's the worst to now, you know, Trump won't condemn, you know, white nationalists, which even factcheck.org says very fine people on both sides was taking it out of context. He condemned them the next day. So it's just kind of one of these things where Biden was your guy. And then it turned into this just like really disgusting, in my view, you know, availability cascades where I'm going to say these things that are just wrong. The media is going to repeat them and the society is going to take them to be true. And they're just blatantly wrong. Uh, you saw it with even Gretchen herself blamed Trump. You guys talked about it last week, blamed Trump. But, you know, the facts are two of the people, the co-conspirators, Brandon and Pete, were very loud anti-Trump guys. You don't hear that. You just assume that it was because of Trump. These were Trump white nationalists that went to go kidnap Gretchen. And I don't know what happened between Mayo Pete. I guess Mayo Pete was somebody that I could connect with and resonate with because he just seemed like an average guy that wasn't a lunatic. And then what ended up happening was the left went so far left and just started making these crazy lies up that were purported to be to be truths. And I just kind of pushed back and it was like, this this isn't right. I can't be in support of 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 a party that will laud Mayor Cuomo's, you know, leadership through COVID when objectively he did the worst job out of I think anybody on the planet by sending uh, sick people back to nursing homes. And then he hid six thousand nursing home related deaths. But then on the other side, say DeSantis and Trump are the worst. It's just one of these things where you just kind of look around and you're like, I just can't agree with this narrative. It's just so wrong. There's too many lies. And what went from center to center left type policies and, and narratives to just blatant lies and extreme left, you know, attack on the rich, tax everybody to death. Anybody who votes for Republican is a racist. I know you guys uh, a couple of weeks ago addressed it and then last week addressed it again and really squashed that saying was that this is not the right vibe i think you said or that's not the right uh something and and like i totally got that yeah q i think you i think i think you're you're, you're right it is not it is not simply that anybody who votes everybody who votes for trump is racist like it is just not like that's not actually true i think what's like the republican party you know and i said this in the beginning of the pot republican party is more coalitional than people understand it. People understand that the Democrats, the Democratic Party is really complicated and there's 
factions within factions and there's so many so much in party fighting so much so that i think some people you know like yourself are casting a protest vote because they're they don't like all of the in, in party fighting with the democratic party or you know there's a you know going in bad directions or so forth you know that's totally fine so i think people discount that the republican party or people that vote for trump i should say because i don't want to conflate two things the republican party and people who are voting for trump i think trumpism has just always been in the republican party before trump got there and i think you know i'm sad to say is the more white nationalist faction of the republican party that you can trace to you know, I was going to say it again, the states of the old Confederacy, like, and we can talk about just the longitudinal voting patterns of those states, you know, we can take it there. But we'll just, you know, take that as 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 a fact. There are a lot of other people in the Republican Party that are more fiscal conservative, libertarian, want smaller government, want tax deductions, you know, want all these things. But yet, they're like, they're just sort of, but that but that part of the of the party is like, still down to align with the ugly part of the Republican Party. And I think if people have gripes, like they can make them there. It's like, if, if you're conservative, totally fine. There are a lot of conservatives on, on the Democratic and a lot of them are black, by the way. There are huge numbers of black conservatives, but they will never vote for Republicans. So that's an interesting question right there. You know, what are the difference between black conservatives and white conservatives? And why, you know, are they distributed across the party lines like this? You know, it's it's basically my, um, you know, assertion that the the non-white nationalist Republican voters don't mind aligning with them to better the Republican Party and and you know get what they need. And I think like that is where the biggest gripe uh, can be made. I I, I kind of follow you there. Uh, there are a couple of things that threw me off. African American conservatives not voting for Republican. Uh, that threw me off because the most recent poll has 28% of African Americans confirming they'll vote for Trump and, you know, 40% plus Hispanics that are confirming they're voting for Trump. So I think that you will see, you know, minorities go to the polls and vote for, for Trump. And then with regard to aligning with white nationalists, I just think it's a, a byproduct of, you know, you know, the conservative party isn't aligning. I don't think there's any policies or any overt things that are saying to say like, we love the KKK, we love white nationalists. Right. I yep. think it's just, you know, the media and everybody is saying, you know, Joe Biden gets on and says, you're not black. If you have to choose between Donald Trump and me, you're not black. I think white nationalists see that like, okay, every black person is going to vote for the Democrats. So I'm going to vote against that. And I think that's just probably a byproduct of that. Uh, yeah. No, I agree. I, you know, I, and I, when, you know, when I say that Republican voters who, who, who vote Republican are, you know, kind of de facto aligning with white, I don't mean like aligning with their views, just in terms of aligning with, in terms of party lines is the thing. Sure. But that, so that statistic is really interesting. You said 28% of black people are voting for Trump? Yes, 28% of, I'll, I'll send you the link, 20% uh, okay. of African-American voters, African-Americans will vote for Trump and 40% of, 41% uh, of Hispanic voters will vote for Trump. Okay, now I definitely want to check that out. I think in 2016, there was, it was like 80 something black men voted for Hillary and the 90 something black women voted for Hillary, Yeah, 98. So there was, you know, yeah. sort of a, 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 which the Democratic Party, you know, has for a lot of reasons, 
uh, a virtual monopoly on the black vote um, in, in this right. country. You know, so if I would I'd be very surprised if those numbers don't hold, you know, with if they're like one, one or two percent off, you know, I'd be very, very surprised if those numbers don't hold in 2021. So maybe I'm just looking at, you know, different polls than you are. That's cool. Like, I definitely want to check it out. But you bring up another good point. Hispanics, or, you know, Latinx or however you want them. That group is and everybody always just puts them together with black people. But that group is extremely different. And, you know, you mentioned kind of the upward mobility of other groups, two parent households of other groups who are not white, but also not black. It's really, you know, and, and I talked to, to uh, uh, Ponto about this on, on our last pod, that those groups are more recent additions to the country than black people. And they really started flooding in after the 1965 Immigration Act. Immigrants in general are just more upwardly mobile to make the trip in the first place to you know, other countries, you know, it's not it. So it's and that's and that's true for whether it be white people who have been here for generations or black people who have been here for generations, all immigrants come over, even, you know, quote unquote, black immigrants um, from Nigeria or, or, or whatever. Um, they're just they're just more upwardly mobile um, de facto, because the way that 1965 Act was written is that, um, you know, it was sorting for exceptionally educated immigrants for it was more for corporate needs um, that brought them over rather than people who would be on welfare in some other society bring them over over here so you know it's it, they they're just they're in a different category of education in a different category of wealth as well so i think that that creates less of an apples to apples comparison when you talk about black people who have been here for 13 14 15 generations versus folks that got here after 65 immigrants and the first generation of folks so, I, you know, I think that that makes them different a little bit. And I think ultimately in terms of voting patterns, like you said, Hispanics, there's there's a huge, huge diversity of, of, of Hispanics. I mean, just the category Hispanics in the first place, just like Spanish speaking people. So people that, you know, are are uh, descendant of. I mean, of I'm Hulk. Hispanic. Right. There you go. So your mic's right. So, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm all, all day Hispanic Latinx, but like I, no one ever thinks that I, I pass right. as white all day long. Which I am also, but you know, it, that that one's a complicated number. I, I know yeah, we don't have too much time. Q, I, I actually am curious. You you touched upon something which a bunch of other people we've talked about have touched upon. Do you think the the, the number one thing that's kind of gotten you to where you are is just you know just the way the media is is kind of you know placing things and within that how you feel the Democratic Party has added on to you know. The New York Post, you know, the New York Times comes out with an article, a Washington Post comes out with an article, blah, 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 whatever, it says something. And then a Democratic candidate launches upon it and says that this is an absolute truth. This is an absolutism. Do you think all these absolutisms that have been created is what's pushing you for this? To um, the right? That's a great question. I think the, the media's handling of everything is is probably what pushed me most to the right. But I think the secondary thing that pushed most to the right was politicians incessant denial of people's agency meaning that if something bad happened to you or if you were put in a bad situation or you were just born you don't have any ability to do anything you're just kind of screwed and it's the government's job to take care of you and you are somebody that should be looked after. And I just, I just think as an American, as, as somebody with Ponto says, anybody that's born in this country can bootstrap themselves and 
and try to have some upward mobility. I know it's harder given uh, different socioeconomics, uh, economical societies into which you're born, but, but that option is available to you. And to deny people that agency, I just think is, is disrespectful and, and puts, some, puts you into a mental framework, which is just not healthy. I think you should be being told you can do anything every day of the week, that your opportunities are endless, not that, oh, something happened to you, you were born into different, you're born into poverty, you're born into a certain area, so therefore you're kind of screwed and just give up your hands and be done with it. And I think it's much so more the media, but I think the double and downing on denying people agency uh, is, is really upsetting me too and, and kind of taking me to the right. Got it. Do, do you... Um you know, the, 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 the pulling yourself up by the bootstraps advice. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree that you in America, you can achieve great heights just through individual grit um, and, and agency. Absolutely. I think where that like prescription falls short is then when is when, is when you talk about mass populations. And then you, 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 you say this to, hey, mass population over here, everybody should just simultaneously pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And I think that that is the way this country addresses black people disproportionately. And like, so I, I don't disagree with the notion, like absolute, like, yes, entrepreneurship, all, you can point to case study after case study, individual over individual, absolutely, they're black billionaires, it was a black president. But you know, for the very sort of mean individual in this group that is just quite mediocre, you know, is, is it the case that that person should pull themselves up by the bootstrap when this other group over here, the mean mediocre person did not need to in order to achieve a certain level of well-being, you know, and, 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 and the discrepancy between these, these individuals in these mass populations, should that discrepancy be looked into and like what is the nature of that discrepancy you know what i mean so i i mean i think i think from a, a micro standpoint i i totally agree with you but from from a larger macroeconomic economics um trend of how groups do in this country you know there has to be other solutions to address where they are but also the reason why they are where they are you know what i mean right Right. And I, I think that in, in why I voted for Obama in 08, as cliche as that sounds, is I thought the lowest hanging fruit for poverty stricken communities, especially the, the African-American community, was to decriminalize nonviolent drug crimes, especially cannabis. Like I like a half baked and Dave Chappelle is like, got 25 years for weed. And I'm like, that still exists today. Like why? Why? That should be the you should be able to clip that very easily to say. Let's uh, let's exonerate these people that are serving, you know, life sentences or multi-decade sentences for for weed, which is legal in I think probably like 17 states now. But at the time when Obama was in place, he had house of he had control of the House and Senate. And I thought that would just easy to clip that. That should be very easy. But I think it's been pushed on the states now, more on a federal level. And I think you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's a five billion dollar stimulus package for COVID. Like, why can't we dedicate hundreds of millions of dollars to education on you know, in urban areas to say, here, here, parents, here's how you educate, here's how you enroll your kid in a charter school. Here's how you uh, educate your kid. Here are the things that should be set in place to make sure you give your kid the best chance as possible. Maybe you don't know it because your parents didn't teach you, but we're here to teach you. Like, there are some simple steps here that can make yeah. your child's life a lot easier than your life has been. Yeah. No, I, I feel that. And 
you know, let's say that all the people who were in in prison because of uh, because of the drug war of, you know, Reagan and Clinton or whatever, if you remove all those people from jail, you know, and, and, and decriminalize them. And, and if you enroll every person, every black uh, student in the charter schools and give every black person high incomes, that's still not going to do it, unfortunately, because the way that the imbalance was created is just through these larger structural issues that perpetuate a momentum all the way down to the, to the individual. I mean, you know, the incarceration thing, the drug war is definitely a huge thrust, but it, it's been a problem since the 1910s, mass incarceration or the disparity of, 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 of sort of black and white in prisons before Hispanics got here. Well, Mex you know, Mexicans, they were here, but like, you know, post 65 Hispanics. It's been a problem since before that. If you take, you know, black people, give them high incomes, give them houses, there's still a huge, huge wealth disparity um, and a huge, huge institutional wealth disparity in terms of neighborhood comparison as well. It's just, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's just a huge, huge undertaking that I think folks are only seeing or only really scratching the surface of, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's just, you have to take baby steps, right? Step by step, you know, um, I mean, how many Fortune 100 leaders are, are non-white, non-black today in the United States, right? And I think that was just, as you said, you know, highly educated immigrants came over and where there was their culture. I have a friend who, who didn't get into India, Indian Institute of Technology, which is, I think it was, it was 100 million people or something have to like apply to some, not 100 million, like a million people have to apply. And then when they don't get in, they just go to Harvard or Wharton or, or Yale or something uh. like that. And he's like, I, you know, I'm a derelict because I'm a titan of the hedge fund industry, but my brothers and sisters are doctors or brain surgeons. And I just think after decades and decades of kind of that uplifting within that community, you've seen, you know, 50, 60, 70 years hence, you know, how prolific other races have been in the business world. So I think it's just baby steps, right? If we can help educate lower income communities and, and poverty stricken communities on, on just little tweaks that they can have in raising their children and giving their children the best opportunity possible to, for upward mobility, you may not see it for 10, 20 years. It may take 30, 40 years to actually to have their kids be educated and then them have kids and then, then get the illegitimacy rates down because that's 67% in you know, poverty-stricken communities. So there's no quick fix, which is really unfortunate. I just think it's a systematic issue that we have to pour proceeds for education into kind of, to kind of change the way that people are thinking, which, which have unfortunately had them stuck in these lower income communities. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, you know, and I totally get the logic, but the problems to solutions have to be akin to their creation. And all of the things you laid out is, is not what created the problem. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I feel you like hypothetically, theoretically, right. like you could do it that way. Absolutely. Um, but has any other group in this country's history done it that way? No. No. I, yeah, absolutely. So I, I look, you know, I think everybody wants to, I think we all have the same solution at the end, not the same solution, the same end result. We're all achieving. We all want to achieve for yeah, the same thing. Absolutely. We just don't know how to go about it. And there hasn't been an idea presented publicly that everybody can like get behind it's kind of like this is an issue how do we solve it i don't know but let's yell and scream and point the finger at donald trump and white you're not gonna like it q q there, there has <laughs> been a solution proposed and you're not gonna like it but you know what i'm about to say reparations yeah it's, it's, it sounds like some like 
cockamamie, bug-eyed, you know, idea like you're like human sacrifice or something. It sounds insane, right? It's like, right. what? What are you talking? But, you know, if you look at, at other case studies of when reparations were given, you know, it, it, you start to understand that, well, it, maybe it's not so insane, whether it's legitimate or not, like whether it, it is a good solution or not, but like logistically and the political will to get there is a totally different, you know, argument. And, and I agree, it's not there, but like, is it, does it actually logically make sense and would it address the problem in a big way that could, that could get us back to zero? Yes. Do we have the political will, will to do it? Absolutely not. But, you know, that doesn't take away from the fact that that is a solution that's been proposed. Right. I, I, I like I don't love it, but as a, right, as a, right. ostensibly, I don't love it. Right. So ostensibly, it sounds like it's just a check from somebody family right. to another family that done it for, you know, it, my, my family's Jewish. So I'm like, OK, my my family went yeah. through the Holocaust. Right. So we didn't own slaves, but now right. we'll get we'll get taxed on that to give somebody else who was never a slave and their parents were never a slave. So like that doesn't make sense to me. But a stimulus package that will be voted through of which effectively would be the same thing um, on income that's over a billion dollar or over a hundred million dollars earned is taxed at an incremental rate instead of 40 percent, 70 percent for five years. And then it falls off. And that extra income goes to educational programs within lower or within the African-American community. That's something, you know, I think everybody could get behind. But the idea of just cutting a family a check who, who didn't actually experience slavery, I, di- I don't, I don't, so you get that check and then what happens, right? What, what changes, right? You, you have money, but you haven't been, I think you haven't been re-educated on how to, I think, go through the system, make sure your kids and everybody else have the right path forward. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, the, it definitely, it definitely includes like cutting checks in some way. I think it, I think there's a, there's a, it's, there's, it is a more nuanced approach. Ultimately the, you know, of, of when people say, well, what, what is it actually? Is it just cutting checks? It's definitely more than that, but to better understand it, I think we, we, there needs to be a better under, understanding of, of the effects of, it's not just slavery, you know, it's, it's, it's all of the things of the legacy of slavery, which is Jim Crow, um, you know, which, which is segregation, which is redlining, which is incarceration, you know, and we can, and we can debate on whether those are our legacies of slavery or not, but let's just put that aside and say that, you know, just for the, for the uh, purpose of the argument, say that they are. I think you got to, and to, to, to your question of, so addressing those things, maybe it's not just cutting checks to like ex-felons, because that's, that's not really what's going to help, right? So, so then you got to get more creative in certain ways. And, and to understand how creative you need to get, there needs to be more of a study of, of understanding the effects of what those are. But you brought up a great point. Your family's Jewish. You all didn't own any slaves. Uh, a lot of people, I don't, I don't know nobody living or uh, the large portion of the living people, people who are in the country don't have descendants that, that own slaves. It, it's more of a, a, a debt that has been accrued to, to the sort of the, the nation, the coffers of the nation and, you know, the, the government rather than individuals. And I think that um, the bounty of, of the government, of tax revenue that people benefit from, you know, oftentimes people had nothing to do with the reason they got the bounty in the first place. You know what I mean? I mean, like, or, you know, when the Japanese got reparations after internment, you know, Reagan signed it into, you know, was, did those people who paid taxes to fund that, did they personally, you know, incarcerate Japanese people during World War II? No, absolutely not. But, you know, they, they still get the benefits of, you know, state and federal governments through Social Security, the mortgage, mortgage interest deduction, 
you know, the GI Bill, you know what I mean? So it's, you know, the, the idea of what a state and how it works is that everybody puts in through tax revenue and everybody gets out. You know, when, when communities were redlined and they didn't get their apportionment of tax revenue and those tax revenue that the tax that they paid went out to the suburbs and not to, not towards them. You know, it did all did those people in the suburbs own slaves or did their ancestors own slaves? They didn't need to, but they still got an excess of tax revenue via redlining. You know, so it, it gets just really complicated. And I think it's less about individual families and what they are, what they do. It's more so of the debt of the state and, and the country and, and what, what that has to repay to folks. And, you know, and, and you're right that, you know, my biggest argument about wealth and the dynamics of, of financial well-being is that the people who have more generations that trace back to this country are worse off than black Nigerians that just got here a year ago. They're not the same. They're not they're not in the same situation. So no. So the black Nigerian who just got here a year ago should not get reparations. You know what I mean? It's, it's more so a claim of injury that you can trace back to a specific descendants um, for which that debt is passed down through generations or that wealth is passed down through generations. So it's about, you know, going back to kind of the wealth transfers and how intergen- intergenerational well-being gets um, transferred. You know what I mean? So it, I, don't yeah. know. I mean, this, this, is, this is really messy because right, this, this should have right. been done years and years and years ago but it didn't and then I, and then we had all these other terrible things but that aren't like easy it's it's not easy to talk about you know people didn't you know people in certain school districts were, were less funded that people were boxed into certain neighborhoods it's when you have to talk through all these different things you don't get to have a very a to b thing and q i think what i i can understand like probably in your bucket which is well i didn't come from a lot I made it. I made it because I had to think in a certain way and I had to work my ass off. And so that is where I'm here. Ed and I are also really obsessed with a book called Caste, which I strongly suggest you read, which is all about global caste systems. Specifically, they, they kind of earmark America, India, and then the Nazi situation, obviously, with, with the Jews uh, in Germany. But like, in essence, you were in, in a lower part of the caste as a poor white person or poor middle class white person, and you've kind of raised yourself up. But that jump is just, it's really impossible to like think through what that jump is on the, like, the other level as a black person, which is very different than Hispanic person, which by the way, Ed, my family came here in 1965 and they never thought about this, but they must've come into the Immigrations Act. Hey. So, See, that's a, a, it's great. And I'm nothing against the immigration. Never crisis. thought about that ever in my life. That's dope. Like, that's great. You know what I mean? And, you know, but it, it's, it's quite, uh, uh, Farb's trajectory is quite different from a different family that's been here since, you know, the 1800s. And you're just tied to, it's just, you know, and even, t- I think, I think even to this day, like, there are still pensions being paid out to descendants of veterans of the Civil War. Like that is like how far, you know what I mean? It's like, we should be out in the streets. Like, Hey, I don't want my tax money paying for this. We, you know, we didn't have nothing to do with this, but like, that's just how government, that's how a democracy works. Yeah. Um, totally. You know, yeah, you make a great, you make a great point. Right. You know, I didn't grow up. I saw it, you know, with single mother household. I went to the worst high school in the state of Kentucky defined by dropout rate. And I saw, you know, after I graduated, you know, all the things that my other, or the, my, my college classmates, you know, two parents, they went to private schools, they had tutors, they had coaching for pre-SAT, they had all these other things. And I kind of looked back at my mom, I was like, 
I was like, what, why didn't you help me out here? Like what happened? She was like, I didn't have time to do that. Like I was working a job, you were in daycare all the time. Like I didn't have time to educate you on that stuff. And she was like, and you know what? I didn't know about it either. So I think that there's, you know, why I keep coming back to this education point and, and teaching parents yeah. the, the little things you can do to, to give your kid a better shot at life than you ever had. I think could go a long way. It was the thing that you seen was the singularly most impactful thing for you potentially. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Not having two parents and then not having this top down pressure of, you know, you need to study every day when you come home, you need, we're going to put you in tutoring skill, tutoring classes that are free. They're put on by the score, by the, by the school education program that we're going to make sure that you get a 800 on your SATs and the, and the math and the English part. Uh, we're going to put you in art classes because we're going to differentiate you, not just from math and sports, but you're going to be able to play an instrument, which will differentiate you on your college application and maybe, help you with grants or scholarships as well. So all these little things that parents could do for their kids to just give them a better shot. Yeah. Q, do you, and I wonder, you know, you obviously single mother uh, with siblings, bad high school with, with huge dropout rate. You know, I wonder it is, so it's in, and you're doing like really, really well for yourself. I mean, I would say that you are the exception, not the norm of that high school and their outcomes, I would assume, you know, do you ever check back to old classmates and see how they're doing? You know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of them are probably still in Kentucky and, you know, maybe less well off, well off than you are. Um, it's hard to just to go to your high school and say, hey, all of you people from this high school, you just need to be like you, like, you know, you just need to do what <laughs> totally. Q did. Why can't you? It's just, you know, that's just not the reality of it. And I mean, and I don't think it necessarily needs to be. You know, I, I, I think people who, who, you know, just can, can have in, in, you know, in the, the sort of the, the banality of, of the fact that you don't always get to have ultimate control over your individual upward mobility. And, though, and, and there are those that will be exceptional, like, like you and, and I think your journey, but it, it's hard to, to sort of give, say, point to everybody else and just say, you know, hey, hey, do what you did. It's, I think it's yeah. just not realistic. Absolutely. You know, and it's funny, my best friend in the world, still best friend to this day, we started a car detailing business, just, you know, stealing yeah. dishwasher soap out of my mom's <laughs> backyard, which, which is terrible for a car, by the way, but absolutely stripped the paint. And we saved up money to start a car detailing business. He still runs a car detailing business, right? And I think you hit on a point that not everybody's path is the same. And this is a whole nother can of worms that, you know, for another time, if you guys want, if I'm ever invited back, um, <laughs> is uh, I don't think everybody needs to go to college, right? You know, my, my best friend went to college, you know, took out probably $15,000 of, of student loans going to, you know, a, a bottom tier school nationally and a mid tier school in the state of Kentucky. And he's doing the same thing he was when he was 16, right? Not everybody needs to go to college. Not everybody needs to incur you know, student debt to, to just, you know, continue to be, if you're going to be a bartender for that, like, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But I don't think you need to go pay $60,000 to go to college to be a bartender. Um, if you want to start your business, you know, you don't necessarily need to do that. And again, that's a whole nother can of worms, but again, everybody's path is different. Uh, and he, it, there's not like a, a one size fits all, but I do think that there's some just educational things that little simple steps that parents probably don't know about. That, that could be educated with the you know, government stimulus package on how to do something, which could be impactful to even 5% of the community. And that's, I think that's significant. Well, that's, that's good. It, it, we'll, we'll save that can of worms for the next episode <laughs> for sure. But I think this is probably a good place to wrap, but you know, I appreciate you coming on Q, you know, hopefully 
this was I'm dying with with the, the, the usage of Q. I really I mean, we'll run with it this time. If you have you back, you'll have to have your real name. I think this is even I you know, and I especially look, I think the people who listen to this, they probably lean a little bit left. Although I know we have a lot of moderate and some uh, right side viewers, but our listeners, I do think that we have to have these conversations because I I, I do I think you said something about inputs or maybe our inputs are different. Someone said something about that. But I do think we all are trying to get to some of the same places. We're thinking about it differently. Um, but these conversations are important. So anyway, awesome having you on. Really appreciate it, guys. I appreciate it, Q. All right, till next week. See you guys.